Hey, come on over. I got a bunch of it. Come on over to come Mike's. On. There's a treadmill right next to him off screen. Right you over here. See. That never it's gets a, used. It's a paper. <laughs> it's a paperweight. It's a giant man. paperweight. <laughs> All right, my name is Alex Duvall. Welcome back to another episode of Royals Weekly, joined as always by Marcus and one of only four surviving former members of the Clinton Foundation, my brother Mike. (laughs) See, this is why I like to see him ahead of time. We're going straight conspiracy, which I love. I was going to say, we're going straight conspiracy theories off the top of the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, they'll never find the bodies, okay? If I'm only one of four left, that means I did, I did some of the work. So you know, what don't I, cross me. What I find hilarious—that's like that's me. like a deep cut conspiracy okay. theory. Like that this conspiracy theory hasn't been seen since you yeah. know 2003 or something like that. You know, like it's, we're bringing them way back. It's been a while. It's been a while. But yes, thank you for joining us, Alex. <laughs> he has wanted to do one of those intros for a very long time. Te- teed it up perfectly. <laughs> Glad it was a good one. It's so much better than the one you have here in the rundown. You know. No, that one's good. No, because I read that one. I go, this is lame, man. No, that's lame. No, that's perfect. That's that is a good that's one. perfect. Um, don't listen to these guys. Uh, my name is Marcus Mead. That was Alex Duvall. That is Michael Mead, my brother. Welcome back to an off-season episode of Royals Weekly. We're very happy to have Alex Duvall of Royals Farm Report with us. He is going to bring a ton of an insight and analysis and the subject of our spotlight segment today. We're going to talk about some sort of research that he's been doing. I don't want to call it research. Some sort of surveying of the public that he's been doing through his uh, very popular Twitter feed. Follow him at Royals Farm on uh, on Twitter. Thank you for joining us. It's been a month since we had an episode and I was jonesing to come up with another one because I got to talk about the things that we haven't talked about yet. So we're going to talk about the signing of new pitching this week. The Royals made some signings. We're going to talk about Alex's research. We're going to talk about potential breakout candidates, which I actually didn't even put on the rundown and I'm guessing won't make the cut at all because we're going to run out of time. But just in case, we might talk about that as well. Is everybody ready to jump right into it and start talking about what the Royals have been up to for the last month? I am. Yes. Let's do it. We start everything with roster turnover. That's sort of our, our first review point. And there's been at least a little bit of it. It's kind of a minimalist offseason for the Royals. Some fans hoping that they would do a little bit more. Other fans perfectly okay with them sitting pat. Let's talk first about the signing that they made in mid-December. The Royals went out and signed left-handed pitcher Ryan Yarbrough, 31-year-old lefty at an Old Dominion. Apparently, they're forming the Old Dominion alumna ga- alumnus game at, at, at Kauffman Stadium uh, frequently because now we got Yarbrough from Old Dominion. We got Vinny Pascantino from Old Dominion. We got Matt Quatero from Old Dominion. Apparently, that team is just – they're pumping out talent. And so they signed Yarbrough to a one-year $3 million deal. He's a career 4.33 ERA with a 19.2% K rate and a 5.4% walk rate, soft-tossing lefty. Uses an 82 mile an hour cutter as his main fastball, and he gets by sort of on pitchability, movement, and command. Alex, Mike, I want to start with the overall. What did you guys think of this Ryan Yarbrough signing? How do you feel about the Royals uh, spending a little bit of money, very little money, for this lefty who may or may not make the rotation more of a swingman type? This is the kind of guy that I actually, the Royals get all the time, it feels like. It feels like they get guys like this all the time, but I actually like it as a signing. Now, I don't know. I think they're going to try and fit him in as a starter, but I'm not sure that's the best role for Ryan Yarbrough, but you know, I like it. Now this is the kind of move. I feel like a team that's on the cusp of winning does the Royals are not on the cusp of winning. So 
that seems a little bit weird to me. Seems like maybe it's just a hey, let's get a guy to fill some innings rather than this is going to be the guy that puts us in contention for the division. But if the Royals really aren't in a place for that anyway, but yeah, I do like him. I, I like him as a good piece on a team. I, he's just not going to move the needle for the starting rotation at all. Yeah, more like yawn, bro. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> this, that's the type of comedy you tune into this for, right there. Yeah, <laughs> this was. Like, I think every single Royals blogger picked the Royals to sign Yarbrough. I think every single one of us did it. Because I know for a fact Lesky did. I'm pretty sure Craig Brown did. I know I did. Like, I'm pretty sure everybody could see this coming from a mile away. And what kind of scares me about, about these two signings, and it's almost, it's almost funny. It's not funny. It's not good. But it's almost so bad that it's funny is like when they signed Yarbrough, and don't get me wrong before I just shit all over this, there's no such thing as a bad one-year deal. And you could sign literally anybody for one year, three mil, and you're not going to upset me. It could, it could have been literally anyone other than maybe like a Trevor Bauer, right, where there's like baggage attached to it. Any decent human being, one for three, okay, I, whatever, that's fine. Like the, the, the part that concerns me is it's, it feels like they signed Yarbrough and Lyles, who we'll get to, just like somebody's got to go get some outs. Like, can somebody <laughs> please go get some outs? Like, we don't care that you give up seven runs before you get three outs, but we need to get three outs that our young guys don't have to get. And that is just, like, so defeating that in December they're telling you, like, in advance, hey, this is not going to go well. Like, it's we're straight up not going to have a good time again. In 2023. So when they when they signed both of these guys, I was like, oh boy. Like this is just a straight up who can stay healthy for 162 and and get us by. Well, I thought I think it wasn't just the healthy. That is a big part of it, I think. But it's also who can who can we sign who can throw a strike? I think that was their big thing. Because if you look at Yarbrough and Lyles's like main selling points would be like they don't walk people. And so I think they were like, let's find some guys who are gonna throw the ball over the plate. It's going to be right over the plate. They're not going to be great pitches. and But let's hope they don't get hit out of the yard and our guys can track them down. Like, that's all they're really sort of hoping for here. And it's not like Yarbrough hasn't had good seasons in the major leagues. He has had good seasons in the major leagues. He's coming off a pretty pedestrian season with the Rays. You know, it's not – hasn't looked great – didn't look great for him last year. But as a guy who's going to go out and throw you basically 100 innings as a spot starter, swingman kind of guy – Meh. Well, like we all expected it because it all made perfect sense for where the Royals are in their sort of trajectory right now. And, you know, one of the things I find super interesting about Yarbrough is that he's a cutter first guy. Like that's his fastball is his cutter. And it makes you wonder, like, are they going to get more comfortable with guys doing stuff like that? Is it going to be more likely that Daniel Lynch does something like that or some other guy does something like that where they're sort of getting away from their forcing fastballs? The Royals have a rotation full of dudes with bad four-seam fastballs, it'd be interesting to see if they went to a system where they started letting guys throw cutters more or something like that. I think that'd be interesting. Yeah, a la James Shields. The organization didn't have a lot of guys that threw quality change-ups. James Shields got here. He started – we've heard stories about him working with Danny Duffy on a change-up, but then the organization started almost pushing change-ups more and more. Um, and so, yeah, I, I could – if that's what – if that's all you get out of Ryan Yarbo is – a organization willing to throw cutters more, I'll take it. They've spent $3 million in worse ways. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. This is, and this is like the thing that 
you make the joke, but like this is the the beauty of signing guys that are low low end like this. And Mike brought it up is this feels like a move you make to compete, and that's like the the weirdest part about where they're at is if Ryan Yarbrough was willing to come to KC on a one year three million dollar deal, and and again I'm I was rambling, getting to the point of it makes me believe they told him he has a chance to start. Like Ryan Yarbrough probably had one for two, one for one and a half with a club that can compete. And it feels like when you're in in that kind of a ballpark that he would have signed with somebody who was more ready to compete than the Royals. If it was all about just being on a good team, the money but something tells me that because of the money and the years and where the Royals are, that he's going to get a chance to start. So I wanted to come back to that. But the, the Mike was all around it. But that was that's kind of where I was as he's he's going to get a chance. I think now whether he starts or not, I don't know. But I think it'll be open competition in spring training. See, I think they'll say it's open competition, but I'm like I just don't see him winning that spot um, because. He's filled that role for Quatrero in the past uh, of a swingman and that sort of thing. And because the Royals have so many guys who they're looking forward to be in that rotation. You know, you talk about Lyles now, but Lynch and Bubich and Heasley. And I think Max Castillo is going to get a look too. And I think maybe Enhel Zerpa gets a look. I doubt it, but maybe. And they'll at least tell him that he's getting it. Maybe eh, if some if that new pitching, if Sweeney comes in and unlocks him. They just have a lot of guys who are going to get looks for those last three spots in the rotation. And do I think Yarbrough wins it? I doubt it, but I think he's definitely going to make, if somebody said over under Yarbrough makes five starts in 2023, I think I'll probably take the over if somebody forces me to pick on that one. I agree for the simple fact that you've got a lot of young starters that are going to need help. And I say young, they're not young anymore. You have a lot of bad starters who have not proven themselves and um, just having that experience to go out there and, and get through a game is it's sad that we're sitting here talking about that, but that's, I mean, that's what the Yarbrough signing screams is go somebody go out there and get them out, please. We'd have killed for a Ryan Yarbrough in, in August last year. Killed for one. Oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk about another guy who maybe will come in and provide even more innings than Yarbrough. Jordan Lyles was signed like two or three weeks after Yarbrough. We were we were talking Christmas time, New Year's time, and in, in that stretch there. Uh, if you don't know, uh, Lyles is a 32-year-old right-handed pitcher, previously pitched with Baltimore last season, has pitched with, I think, uh, the Rangers in the past before that, Colorado for a while. A bunch of bad hitting environments, honestly. He has pitched in some of the worst hitting environments or pitching environments that you can find uh, in Major League Baseball. He's got a career 5.10 ERA, 17.6% strikeout rate, and a 7.7% walk rate. Uh, The league loves his low 90s fastball at this point. They just feast off of it. Um, But luckily, he's been throwing it less and less. He's got a good curveball and a good slider, both by uh, opponent numbers and by the movement metrics and things like that. Uh, I just posed this question to you because you talked about how uh, Alex and Mike talked about how like the Royals don't have a ton of great pitching right now. Is Jordan Lyles an actual improvement to this rotation? I think he is. Now that says maybe more about the starting rotation currently than it does about Jordan Lyles. But um, I do think he's the kind of guy that when you and I were talking uh, towards the end of the season, hey, these are the upcoming free agents that are going to be available. We talked, we discussed a couple times. Okay, do you maybe go? Do you spread your money out and get two? two, maybe possibly three 
starters that are in that mid to lower tier. He's a guy I could have seen them getting in that lower tier, that third guy, like, Hey, he might eat some innings for us, but he'll, we know exactly what we're going to get with him. Uh, so yeah, I, I think he does improve it, but only because he's again, more consistent and you know what you're going to get from him. Um, he's not going to, he, he's also not moving the needle. He's not taking your starting rotation from bottom third to middle third. That's for sure. The way, the way I look at this is the Royals signed Lyles to physically make starts if need be. But I think obviously the best case scenario is that Lyle starts the year in the bullpen, right? Like the the best case scenario is that Brady Singer's your one, Brad Keller rebounds and can make starts and be a productive starter for the team, that Jackson Kowar, Daniel Lynch, Chris Bubich, Angel Zerpa, Jonathan Heasley, that five of those names can fill your rotation out and they're forced – to move Lyles to the bullpen, right? Like that's that's best case scenario. And as a likely, no, that's the best case scenario. And then if you need a Jordan Lyles later on the line, if Lynch gets hurt, which he missed some time on the IL last year, if Heasley's not cutting it, if Kowar's got to go to the pen, then he's there. But I think best case scenario is Lyles doesn't make any starts in a Royals uniform. I just don't, That's that's the issue right now is until we, really understand what this new excuse me this new regime is going to do for the for the arms currently in the organization i think with lyles your expectations just should be tempered a little bit i think what mike said is 1000% true even if he's your number 2 starter your rotation's not getting substantially better i think all he does is like anchor the floor down a little bit so the the two inning starts of giving up eight runs, like generally not what you're going to get from Lyles. He's a pretty consistent four to six inning, four to six run guy. I mean, it's just kind of what you come to expect from him. And the, we, we talked about the cutter earlier and is the organization going to be more apt to open to things. The thing I like about Lyles potentially going to the bullpen is he gets elite horizontal movement on his slider uh Patrick Brennan a former the co the the founding father of Royals Farm Report tipped me off to that earlier this offseason like hey Lyle's made some tweaks to his slider and it is more of a sweeper now it is kind of moving into a newer age where guys are trying to intentionally force the ball right to left versus uh getting vertical movement going down right and Lyle seems to fit that mold and maybe, you know, we, we saw Dylan Coleman do a little bit of that last year where his slider started to sweep more than it's coming, breaking down. Maybe the organization is, is wrapping their heads around this idea of moving pitching into the 21st century instead of sitting back in the 20th century. And, and, and maybe there's just a, a good combination of things working here in terms of the veterans they are bringing in. Yeah, the rosy picture, when you look at this, is like maybe they've targeted guys they think have something, they have a different level or they have a different gear or they they can take advantage of something somebody hasn't taken advantage of in the past with these guys. If you're looking at Lyles, you would say, well, what if they turn him into a a curveball slider pitcher primarily? Because his curveball has a ton of vertical movement. Well, and so now he has a profile of a really good horizontal movement with the slider and really good vertical movement with his curveball. Those are swing and miss pitches for him. All he has to do otherwise is not get shelled 
on his fastball too much, you know, basically at that point. And so with a guy like Lyles, I look at that and I, th- I think they paid him so much money, they're going to expect him to be a rotation guy, right? I also look at it and I say, they've signed guys who maybe they're like on other teams, they're nothing more than four or five starters or something like that. You know, they're just sort of marginal guys. But if they think we're going to solidify our floor, because what was the the hard part about 2022? Wasn't that like they didn't have a top end guy. They had Brady Rose, Brady Singer performing like a number one, number two. The problem was their bottom half of their rotation wasn't fit for major league play. Wasn't even competitive. Yeah. No, the numbers from Keller, Lynch, Bubich, Heasley, those guys were way outside of major league average. They are like, they're, they're looking at major league average with binoculars from where they're sitting, you know? And so I think what they're saying is maybe the answer isn't, we can't go out and buy elite pitching anyway. We can't afford it. We haven't developed it yet, but we can solidify our floor a little bit and say, we're not going to get, you know, that's where we're going to make up some ground is not giving up eight runs in the first inning. Like, like Alex mentioned. Yeah. That was what I, I was going to ask you guys that like, if you, do you see Jordan Lyles as major league average for a starter or slightly below? And then ask yourself this, how many guys in our rotation last year, you can say the same thing about that, even reach that level, right? And it's not very many, one, it's really one. (laughs) And so like, that's why I think for sure he's going to be in the starting rotation. Yes, it would be fantastic if in spring training we come out and we see a new Chris Bubich that can command his fastball and we see a, a John Heasley who can be more consistent and we see a Daniel Lynch who's last, who improves his fastball or maybe now is throwing a different, like a cutter or going to a two-seamer or something like that. Uh, that would be great. But I think you're going to see a lot of Jordan Lyles starting games this year. One thing that I was thinking about, and this is kind of an outside the box, I don't, I don't really know how much weight there is to any of this. But if you go back to the last three free agent pitchers, starting pitchers the Royals have brought in, Granky, Lyles, Yarbrough, they all have something in common, which is they throw exceptionally not hard. Like their their ingredients are to throw under the bat speed. And I and I and I wonder as I think about the concept of this is in an era where guys and I've tweeted about this before, but guys throw harder than ever. We throw the best fastballs in the history of ever, and we're throwing fewer of them. Like we're we're learning very slowly that there aren't rules that say you have to throw your fastball a certain amount of times. There aren't rules that say your fastball has to be set to establish the off. You don't have to establish the fastball. It's fake. It doesn't exist. All your fastball has to do is, is show the hitter that you can get them out with it, and then everything else can work. By bringing in three guys now, Granky, Lyles, Yarbrough, who throw exceptionally slow for the level, it, they're almost like trying to show the the younger guys, be you. Like this is working for them because they're not trying to be something they're not. They're not trying. Hey, Daniel Lynch, because and this is. I'm sorry, I'm getting long winded. But this is something that I think Daniel Lynch tried to do last year. Is okay. Everybody else is pitching through the top of the zone. Let me see if I can do that. And he can't. He can't pitch the top of the zone. He tried. He's not good at it. He even flattened his fastball out a little bit. Like he maximized his four seam approach. That's not very good. Sink it, Marcus. You you said maybe cut it. Like do something different. And there's there's a map. And I wish I could like show. I didn't bring a, a graphic, but 
Kyle Bodie puts these these pictures out of like, and it was when Shohei brought out his sinker this past year. It's like here's a graph of all the fastballs, and you don't want to be in the middle. You want to be somewhere on the edges. You want your fastball to be different than everybody else. It doesn't have to be better. It just needs to be different. And that's what I, I wrote about last year is Daniel Lynch's fastball is exceptionally average, which is not good. Find a way to make it different. And Yarbrough cuts it. Lyles cuts it. Granky sinks it. Like, how can we make our fastballs unique instead of trying to maximize them like Spencer Strider does? You're not Spencer Strider. You can't make your fastball almost look like it's rising to the top of the zone. But what can you do to set yourself apart? And the, all these pitchers they're bringing in kind of all have that in common where they've had to set their fastballs apart, even if they're not the best at it. They're making the most of what they have, and what they have isn't a lot. And I think also an, an added dimension to that is those guys who don't throw very hard are to some degree a market inefficiency. They cost less than those guys who throw really hard. You're paying premium prices for premium velocity when the world can simply say, uh, does the is the velocity increase, does it give you more production? Not necessarily, or at least not worth $10 million more than we could get Jordan Lyles for or whatever, you know, like, and so I think, I think it, you're right, Alex. I think it's a combination of two things. I think they're leaning into the notion that they can find guys for relatively cheap who don't throw great fastballs or hard fastballs or something like that but who do other things. And they, if the Royals are going to get anything out of Jordan Lyles, if they're going to hope that he has the best year of his career, they're going to do it with a pitch mix where he is not throwing his fastball more than 35, 30% of the time. Like that's just going to happen. It's going to be curveballs. It's going to be sliders. It's going to be other things. They're probably going to have to lean into a similar approach with their other guys. But I think if we're going to say, if we're going to look at these two signings positively, we would say wise decision to go out and take guys you think can be a little bit better than the market thinks because you can give them a different pitch mix. You can put them in front of a very athletic defense and you can put them in Kauffman Stadium. And it's like a lot of guys are going to be – look at Granke last year. Do you think Granke is nearly as successful as he was last year if he's pitching in Baltimore or down in Houston or down in Texas or you know in Arlington or whatever? I seriously doubt it, right? There is a formula for – getting increased value out of the starting pitch at free agent market. And I think that they're kind of finding it with these signings. It's like, we can't pay for guys to strike people out, but we can pay guys to not walk people and to not have the ball leave the yard. That's, they're going to be their thing, I think. So we'll move on a little bit from that conversation. Talk a little bit about the, um, not the additions that they've done in the free agents or additions that they've done this off season. We got to address one subtraction that they've made because it is, it is an interesting, (laughs) it is an interesting thing. It's a thing we've all been talking about a lot, and that's Ryan O'Hearn. Ryan O'Hearn was designated for assignment by the Royals. He was then picked up on in a trade. He was traded while he was on waivers to the Orioles for cash considerations. They have since DFA'd him, and he is now unclear where he's going to play baseball next year. What do you guys think of letting O'Hearn go, of the conversation around it, and the, just the decision to do it? Um, for, first, it felt like they just did not want to do it. Let's just put it that way. Like, what can we do to never have to get rid of this guy? Um, but I'm happy for him. Like, in a sense, it, it sucks to get traded to Baltimore, think you're going to have an opportunity, perhaps at the major league level, and then immediately get DFA'd. And from what I've read, and I'm not, I'm not a master of, of contracts, Alex, you know more about this stuff than I do. But from what I've read, he pretty much has to accept 
the designation for assignment with Baltimore to get the money that Kansas City guaranteed him in the contract. And so he's in a financial situation right now that becomes a lot less flexible for him. And so I don't like that for him because I'm sure he wanted to play at the major league level. Um, but for the Royals, you had to. It's it's two, three years overdue. You know, you've got such a crop of young hitters that needs to either get more at bats in the major league level or get more time in the field at the major league level or try the flexibility at different positions. And right now it looks like you're not going to be very good next year. Having Ryan O'Hearn on your bench only takes from those guys. It doesn't help their development in any way. What are you going to do with Nate Eaton? What are you going to do with the extra outfielder you have that apparently you're going to have another one because you won't trade Michael A. Taylor? Like Ryan O'Hearn can't be the guy taking at bats from those people. It just can't be. You already know what you have with him. He's not going to be a part of the future. So I'm, I'm happy that they finally pulled the plug. I'm happy that he got paid before they did it. And yeah, good luck in Baltimore or wherever he'll be in AAA. I don't know what that is. This is a big step in the right direction for the Royals because the Royals historically under Moore and now Piccolo's era have been hoarders. Hoarding, like the hoarding mentality is, well, I don't, I've never used this thing. It's still in the bag. I bought it in, but one day I might. And I, I have a problem with this in a lot of ways. Like just being kind of creative is like, I look at something and it's like, well, I don't need to get rid of that. Like that would have value somewhere. Like this thing isn't totally invaluable. Why would I throw something away? That's not totally invaluable. It's like, because you're not using it. It's like, it's, it is invaluable to you. And just because somebody else won't buy it from you, doesn't mean that it wouldn't do good elsewhere. Like this is, this is literally the hoarding mentality. Ryan O'Hearn hits the ball really hard the other way. You know what's not valuable for a big left-handed hitter like he is? Hitting the ball hard the other way. Ryan O'Hearn needs to hit the ball hard in the air to his pull side. He's horrible at it. He cannot lift the ball to his pull side. It's I don't know like what a good metaphor for it is, like something you would hoard around the house that just isn't working the way you want it to. Hey, come on over. I got a bunch of it. Come on over to come Mike's. On. There's a treadmill right next to him off screen. Right you over here. See. That never it's gets a, used. It's a paperweight. It's a giant paperweight. That's a great example. It's not invaluable. That treadmill, somebody would use that treadmill, even if you're not using it, Mike. That's what I keep telling my wife. But if I get rid of it, I'll never use it, right? Exactly. If I get rid of it, I'll never run on it. That's right. Yeah, because that's, that's how it goes I, now. But that's the thing is like if you I don't know man I just I'm I'm glad for the Royals cuz I mean what not that I've ever been like I had a really hoarding problem but there are things in my life where it's like I just don't want to let that thing go and then once you throw it away dude you feel so much better it's like ah it's gone you know what I'm okay now even though I don't have that thing anymore and by the way you know what the greatest thing about Walmart is the people inside of it if you really needed it you go back and get it for $4 later <laughs> oh <laughs> I thought you were setting up a joke of some sort. No. All right, that makes sense. Uh, if you if you really regret letting Ryan O'Hearn go, the chances are if you needed him later, you can get him for $4 in a few months if you really needed another one. Then why did they give him a million dollars before they let him go? Hey, a million and a half, okay? A million and a half, all right? He's a nice um, guy. That's right. We're about accuracy on this, on this program. That's right. I, I do... <laughs> 
<laughs> never in his life. Um, I do want to, I think that's an excellent point. I'm going to jump on right on to our next sort of thing to talk about because you both, both have mentioned this in some way. Um, I wanted to bring up not trading Michael A. Taylor. And I think this fits perfectly into what Alex was just talking about. I think that the odds that Michael A. Taylor is on the roster on opening day are much better than they should be. I think it's about like a 70% chance that Michael A. Taylor is on that roster on opening day. And why? Because the Royals cannot cut their losses. They're terrible at it. And it's because in their mind, I think they think that as a small market team, if, if they've lost value in some way, they need to wait around until they regain it in some way. But they, it just doesn't ever happen, right? And so they need to learn how to cut those losses and say, like, we need to get what we can for Michael A. Taylor today because every day we're getting less and less and less. And every day we're creating more problems for ourselves by not doing these things. We, I mean, we harped on it all year last year leading up to the trade deadline and after the trade deadline they should have done this. They need to do this. They got to do this. They didn't do it. And now we're stuck in the same position we were last year with Whit Merrifield and Carlos Santana. If they would have traded Michael A. Taylor, they would have saved themselves roughly $10 million because the seven they're going to give him this year and what the last three they were going to give him last year and another $3 million in Yarbrough when they would have gotten Jordan Montgomery back from the Yankees when they traded for Harrison Bader which, I mean, I'm not saying they would have gotten Jordan Montgomery, but if you could have gotten a similar type of an arm, you wouldn't have had to pay him. You'd be $13 million surplus right now, and Kyle Isbell could play every day in center field. Like, this is the thing. It just accumulates. All the bullshit just accumulates, and then you've missed out on these other opportunities. It's like, oh, it's infuriating. It's it's like a, watching a, a D-Gen gambler at the craps table who thinks yes. the more times he plays, he'll start winning eventually. <laughs> it's insanity. I got to win like, that money back. I, yeah, how yeah. am I going to make my rent back that I just lost? It's throwing. It's it's the old saying of throwing good money after bad. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're you're trying to buy your way out of a bad decision. A thing that you, you know, not saying that acquiring Michael A. Taylor was a bad decision, but the not getting rid of him when you should have is continuously a bad decision every single day. Every single day you don't do it. It's compounding. It's, it's rough. But I put it at about 70, 75% uh, chance that he's on the roster, uh, at least when spring training opens. Yeah. Well, give us something to talk about. The list of <laughs> well, we'll just be yelling about it at that point. <laughs> so the, the, the irony of it, too, by the way, and, and even if you want to remove Michael A. Taylor from it, like, let's. I, okay. I don't know how you. Okay. Michael A. Taylor, Kyle Isbell. Neither of them can hit that we've seen they both play really good defense in center field one is old makes seven million one's young and makes league minimum what am i missing like what is the justification for michael a taylor like his defense is not so much better than kyle isbell's if it's better at all really that you can justify playing him on this team you're about to roll out there in 2023 it's not. It's not worth it for seven million dollars. It doesn't even come close. I don't understand what the justification is. If you were the biggest Michael A. Truther ever, because Kyle Isbell's proven to be an elite defender in center field. I never thought he could do that. I figured he'd be elite in the corners. Everything you want to look at suggests that Kyle Isbell is elite in center field. Give him a chance. Go run. Go figure it out. Let's see what happens. $7 million is two more years of Ryan Yarbrough. <laughs> That's at least one bar around your ballpark downtown you could build. 
It's really, really, really important to us that you subscribe, rate, review, like, and comment about this podcast on whatever platform you're using, okay? If you watch YouTube, throw us a like and a comment with your thoughts on the topics of the day on Ryan Yarbrough or Jordan Lyles or Michael A. Taylor. We'd love to hear what you got. Doing all this stuff helps us find more people to watch the show and lets us know we're doing something right and you want us to produce more content. Plus, Mike only needs a few more subscribers before our mom actually respects him and is proud of him. Isn't that something you want to help get him? I think it is, right? It's free. It takes about half a second, but it does us a world of good. And make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We post a ton of additional analysis on there every day and interact with anyone who's willing to talk with us because we need the friends. It's going to be a great test to see if mom actually listens to the show like she claims she does. So we are very happy to have Alex here with us from Royals Farm Report. Uh, he went out and p- ran a series of uh, Twitter polls that he wanted, we were going to talk about today because I think the results are interesting. says a lot about where the fan base is in terms of their thinking related to the team. It's important that you understand that when Alex runs a poll, it actually gets a significant number of responses because he has something like 20,000 Twitter followers or something like that. So Alex, why don't you walk us through these polls and tell us what you found particularly interesting about the results? So the idea was, I just, I like to know, like, psychology, sociology are things that are very interesting to me. I like to know kind of how other people with similar interests view a thing. So, like, I love, like, that's one of the reasons we started Royals Farm Report is to share that hobby, that joy, that passion with other people is to to share that, right? And so the reason for the poll, I just want to know what people like us and other Royals fans think like, what do you think would happen? Like, what do you think is, is good or what would be better? And so in the first one is, is pretty simple. Pick one to lock in for 2023. If you had a magical button in front of you, red, blue, you pick one and it's locked in, it's guaranteed to happen. And everything else could have a normal array of outcomes. So the first one, young MLB hitters take the next step but the young arms flame out. Anything else could happen. Anything in the minor leagues could happen. Anything with like the fielding, the coaching staff, the general manager, the downtown ballpark, literally anything else could happen, but the young MLB hitters take the next step or the young arms flame out. And then the other option would be young MLB hitters regress to the mean a bit and the young MLB arms take the necessary step to becoming legitimate big league arms. I was floored that 78.6% of people chose B. I think that's the wrong answer. Really? I think that's the right answer. I think it's the right answer too. I I do not. (laughs) Well, let's hear why you think it's the wrong answer. Go for it. Here's my problem with this. The young MLB hitters cannot afford to regress much. Like if Bobby Witt Jr.'s overall offensive output comes down, We're talking about a really disappointing sophomore year from a guy who, because of his on-base percentage, was just pretty good his rookie year. Now, for a rookie, he was pretty good, like really good, but regression would not be good for Bobby Wood Jr. MJ Melendez had a weighted runs created plus of like 99. You don't want Vinny Pasquantino coming back to earth. You don't want Michael Massey, Nate Eaton coming back to earth because what do you have to build on if these guys ain't it? On the other hand, let's say that all of these guys take the next step. Vinny Pasquantino is a legitimate top 25 bat in baseball. Nick Prado is a legitimate starting first baseman. MJ Melendez is a legitimate budding star in the outfield. 
Nate Eaton can contribute and play regularly in the big leagues. Michael Massey can start at second base. Bobby Witt Jr. starts to turn the corner into a star. But your young arms flame out? Go get some new arms. At least we have a core. We have a new thing to build around. If the MLB if the MLB arms step up and the hitters go down, you've got a big pile of average is what you would have. You would have average hitters, average pitching, which may sound good, but when you're talking about trying to ascend to a playoff level, you want something like really good, above way above average to build around. If these young bats take that step, you have it. The offense is in place. Great. Now what do we do about the arms? We can tear it down and re-go, right? It's it's this hoarding mentality that we were just kind of talking about is like it would be best if it doesn't work out in 23 to cut loose, bring up Marsh, Bolin, the next wave of them, and try again. Go spend some money and try again. Because we're not far away from that with these arms. Like we're not far away, maybe a year, before we know for a fact that it's going to work or it's not going to work. If you take the regression from the hitters, you don't have a thing to build around. In my opinion, put all your chips in over here on something we've seen tangible success in and tangible progression in, and then pray for a new wave to come in and fill backfill on the mound. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think I wasn't thinking about it in that sense, but if I, if I'm if you're posing it in that way, I'll probably take the same thing that you take. The thing I was initially I thought, and I voted B. I am I am a respondent in this poll. <laughs> um, I voted B in part because I think one there are two things. One, the last year at the very least, but certainly the last few years has has come to make me of the belief that pitching is more important than hitting. That pitch, like from a basic level, great pitching can keep you in games better than great hitting can. And so my mind was like, I'd, if, if they're both going to be average, I'd rather have average pitching than I would average hitting, honestly. And so, you know, I was like, well, let's go with the progression of the hitters. Also, what it would say about the overhaul that they've made to their pitching, coaching, and development is not good if, you know, if they don't make any steps forward, right? It, w- it would say that maybe they're not the right guys either. Maybe like Brian Sweeney isn't the right guy. Maybe Zach Bobie isn't the right guy. Maybe I guess Paul Gibson or Justin Friedman or whoever's really running that minor league development uh, right now um, aren't the right guys. And I don't, I, I really don't want to have to say that. And so like, you know, we'll see on that. I, but that's sort of where my mind was in terms of in reading this question. Yeah, I, I went with B as well. And you guys tell me if I'm thinking of bad examples here. But what I was kind of thinking is, would you rather be the Guardians, right, with our guy, our arms taking like a step forward or whatever, but we can't produce any offense? Or would you rather be like the Angels, where we just can't have ever have good starting pitching? Like, but we have the two best offensive players in the world or two of the best offensive players in the world, like stuff like that. So that's kind of where I was thinking. I was thinking of like examples within major league baseball and give me the guardians because they're going to, in our division, they're going to squeak into the playoffs from time to time. And then it's a crapshoot. Maybe your offensive players get hot, maybe, you know, whatever. So that's kind of how I, and I also somewhat see, especially with like injuries and, and all these aging and all that sort of stuff offensive baseball can be a little bit uh, unpredictable. 
You know, yes, if you're the Yankees or you're the Mets and you can buy whoever you want, yeah, you're going to have stellar offenses every year. But for those normal teams, I feel like sometimes you're going to have good years offensively where a couple of guys on your team are having the best years of your career. And sometimes you're going to get guys that maybe your best hitter gets hurt, your on-base guy, uh, you know, is swinging too much, whatever, and your offensive numbers are down that year. And so because I see offense as maybe a little bit more volatile, um, I, I went with that. And I, and I thought I'd rather be the Guardians. If you were going to ask me about 2024 and beyond as well into the question, I do think there are there there is a a path for me to take B because if you're if you're looking at it from the angle of the MLB hitters and the pitchers both kind of settled average and then in 2024 you're hoping they can both take the next step Whereas if they if the young MLB arms flame out, the assumption is they're not coming back, right? So I can definitely see it. I and I definitely when I posed the question, I wouldn't have posed it if I was like, oh, here's the right answer, dumbasses. Like this is clearly <laughs> correct, right? There is eighty percent of right, your idiots. There's there's a, a lot of good conversation that that I totally understand. I, I the way I look at it is, and it's and it's interesting, Marcus, that you said this is. I don't want to have to admit that this isn't going to work is like part of me is like, what would it take to totally tear it down? And right now, does your gut tell you they've totally torn down the pitching development side and rebuilt it? I know, I know that they haven't actually, Like it's very clear that they haven't because all the guys in their minor league pitching development are still, the same guys who have been there, right? Like even though Mitch Stetter might have new responsibilities, Justin Freeman might have new responsibilities. They're all still there. And, you know, that, I, I don't want to say that it's not going to work either. And I don't want to say it's not going to work at the major league level because we don't know yet. Right. Uh, it, that's the really interesting experiment to me is like, what if John Heasley takes a big step forward? Chris Bubik takes a big step forward. Daniel Lynch takes a little step forward. And like, you know what we're going to find out about the last few years? What takes place this year is going to tell us so much about what was happening the last five years that it's like we're going to learn so much in 2023 about the pitching because they've made this massive overhaul at the major league level. So then if you don't think they've torn it down and you're banking on them making some kind of a comeback, some kind of a push, some kind of a progression, then I think that my, my question for you is let's say then – and Mike, feel free to, to opine on this, but like if if something does take a step forward and all of a sudden we're like, holy cow, like it's working, it's clicking, these guys are getting better. Who, other than just blaming Cal, Ald- Cal Eldred, maybe it is just as simple as saying Cal Eldred was the bane of the organization's existence. What What else will you point to and say that's the difference? Or what are you hoping to point to and say this was the change this is where we can circle back and say this was the difference between 2022 and 2023. Well, as I see it, right, we they're they're waiting and hoping to say that. I think that's. I mean, look look at the comments that they've made this off season. They are throwing Cal Eldred under the bus. They're saying, "Hey, he was the problem, right? Like he was the reason that we couldn't do this, right?" Now we'll get to see. That is the experiment of 2023. Is was Cal Eldred the problem? Is the question and. If these guys make a step forward, it seems like the answer is pretty resounding. If they don't make a step forward, then they have to come start coming around to maybe the conclusion one of two. Either they missed again on the pitching coach hire, 
or which I don't think is actually the problem. I think Sweeney has a ton of respect and a reputation around the league. I think Bovey's well respected too. I don't think that's the problem. They might have to start coming around to the conclusion that we drafted the wrong guys. Like these guys weren't, you know, who who we should have taken that they didn't have what it would take to be in the major leagues. Maybe they were going to be really good, you know, AAA players but never actually make that jump to major league baseball. Yeah, I I think of it in terms as like of of football really because and I know they're very, very different and, and the impacts that coaching can have can be very, very different. But at times, you know, if you get a new offensive coordinator in football, the difference can be huge and immediate. Right. And I think that's kind of what they're hoping for here at the major league level. And that may be why they didn't strip down the minor league side of it. The, the thing that kind of gets me and we're getting away from the poll question here, but it's always been in my mind. It's not like they've had great success developing at the minor league level. So why didn't they do the whole thing? You know, like I know you can say, well, these pitchers, they were drafted in the same draft class and they all made it to Major League Baseball. And I get that. That's hard to do. They had some success in the minor leagues. But last year we didn't like it's not it's not like the pitching development in the last two years has been like, hey, we're doing fantastic. Like we've had some here and there uh, two years ago with Bolin and, and Alec Marsh and things like that. But uh, yeah, I. I I, it really does baffle me. And that's kind of the thing that Mark and I expected. We figured it would be a whole teardown. I thought Paul Gibson would be out. I thought, I thought they'd all be gone and they'd just redo the whole thing. I actually thought that they'd put more of an emphasis on rebuilding the minor league side. And yes, they would change out the, we've been thinking they'd change out the major league pitching coach for a long time, but I, I didn't think for a small market team, that would be the most important move. I thought the rebuilding of the minor league development would be more important but uh, it doesn't appear that they, they, like you said, Mark, it, it looks like they're trying to say Cal Eldred was the problem. Why they didn't see that when everybody else did is, well, we know why he's got a name and he works in Texas now. Um, but yeah, that's, it's just, it's baffling to me. So we'll see. He's got a name and a face and a face <laughs> and he works in Texas. And Can I tell you what terrifies me. Yeah. The comments about we got these guys in through the minor leagues, they they developed well in the minor leagues, they just haven't developed in the big leagues yet. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Developing in the minor leagues is not about pitching well against AAA hitters. Developing well in the minor leagues is about doing the things necessary to be successful when you reach the big leagues. Mark says that all the time. <laughs> the minor leagues, we don't care if you can get double A hitters out. Is what you're doing at Double A going to translate to getting big league hitters out? And the way they keep saying that, I say they. JJ Piccolo is the one making these comments, right? The way he keeps saying it, I'm like, do you think he knows? <laughs> He's gotta know, right? I mean, like, and that's and, and it is a fairly fine distinction and a difficult one, maybe to explain to the common or the casual Royals fan, like the distinction between what it takes to get Double A hitters out and what it takes to get major league hitters out, and knowing the difference is enormous when it comes to developing players when when it comes to developing pitchers it is huge because and chris bubich mike brought him up in our last episode as an example of this and he is the perfect one right like he could get high a hitters out like you wouldn't believe he led the league in strikeouts back in wilmington when he was there right then he goes straight to the majors after that 2020 covid season and obviously some major league average success gets shelled way too often everything doesn't look great right he is the type of guy who could get minor league hitters out the moment he came out of Stanford, the, doing the exact same stuff he did at Stanford. He could just move right up the levels, no problem. And 
the offensive correlate of that is Adalberto Mondesi, a guy who's so talented, he is going to hit at double A and triple A and whatever, and his overall numbers will look good. The problem is the things that they aren't doing are going to be exploited at the major league level. And that's the case with Bubich, and that's the case with Mondesi, and that's the case with a lot of different guys when you're talking about development. You need to identify the set of things that they'll need to be able to do at the major league level and not care what their overall production is in Northwest Arkansas. But Alex, I do want to get to more of these polls. I'm sorry. I I want to get back on these because you had a couple others that I thought were pretty important and interesting too related to the minor leagues. Tell us about your second poll. It came out in a similar way to your first, and that interests me. Well, that's literally what I was about to say. Speaking of development is the next poll, basically the same results. Now, fewer voters, but basically the same percentages that came out is, did you guys, now, did you guys vote for B in this one as well? Yes, I voted for B as well. (laughs) I can't remember which one it is. Okay, so A is minor league hitters continue progressing, but the pitchers don't. And then similar to the first poll, B was the hitting development regresses, but the pitching takes a big step forward. I feel like in these two, if you were looking at it like unilaterally and and you could actually do it, like you could kind of hedge your bet here. Like what if we voted for A and raised the pitching, raise hitter stock, lower pitching stock, and then the minor leagues, we could turn around and reverse it. We could pump up minor league pitching and admit that we're going to lose some minor league hitting development is, I don't know. I was looking at it like I could see flipping your answer here and trying to hedge your bet a little bit. Let's hold up major league hitters and push the minor league arms right behind them. I don't know. It was, that's, that's more of a, like the second poll was really kind of beating the dead horse. That was the first poll, but I was curious to see if there were any betters out there who were like, Oh, I'm going to, we could vote it the other way now and, and like almost guarantee ourselves some success in some regard. Okay. So I, I chose B again in this one. When, when we, uh, when I saw it on Twitter, but I want to change my answer. Okay. Teacher, I'm going to change my answer here. Okay. Um, and here's why there's this, and it, it's an education thing. So maybe I'm sure you've heard of it, Alex, but there's some people in education. They think that you should not work on your deficiencies as much that you should always be working on your strengths and then p- sort of just play to your strengths all the time. That's what I want to do. I want to vote a, because in the minor leagues, I want our hitting to, to continue to be phenomenal, our hitting development. But then that changes our approach to drafting and developing pitchers and our approach to acquiring pitchers in free agency. So if you do that, if you take the step of, hey, we want minor league hitting to continue to be good and maybe even take a step forward in development, then we're going to have to go out and be able to target free agent pitching that can help us be successful at the major league level. So I'm changing it. I'm going wild card here. I want to have the best hitting development in major league baseball, and then we'll just figure out pitching. We are going to just absolutely destroy other teams' pitchers <laughs> and pray to get 27 outs a game. We're going to win a lot of games 12 to 10. 12 to 10. Hashtag draft more hitters. <laughs> they can be four and a half hour games. <laughs> I do want to ask some broad <laughs> questions related to this, and I want to get to those before we re- hit the hour mark, which we're about to. Um, what do you think the responses to this? Now, clearly, if you look at these polls that Alex has put out, they're heavily in favor of the pitching getting better, right? The pitching getting better and we're willing to sacrifice the hitting for the pitching to get better. What do you think these polls say about where the fan base is in terms of its thinking about the 2023 Royals? I think A, 
it shows the fans are clearly fed up with having the worst pitching staff in baseball. B, I think it shows that fans are a little overzealous when it comes to how good our hitting development is. I think the hitting development is top 10, but it's probably at the back end of that top 10. And some of it has to do with scouting and where they've picked players and who they're developing and how and whatever. But the way I the way that I saw these polls was okay. If we're number, let's just call it number ten in hitting development. I think they're better than that. I think it's probably six or seven, but let's call it ten. If they regress, all of a sudden they're average, right? All of a sudden it's an average hitting development group again, and you're pitching. You're just praying to get to average, kind of like what we were talking about. What, what what Mike was talking about. Work on your strengths, and I viewed the poll of let's just make sure we're doing one thing at an elite level. We can always come back and tear down the pitching and try again. But the hitting has made great strides. And when I looked at those polls as a, okay, now that I've put them out there, let's back off and try to look at them as a 30,000 feet. Let's not stop doing well the one thing we're doing well, right? We finally have got a top 10 unit in terms of hitting development. Let's not regress that. And so that's what I was looking at it from. And so in terms of the fan base, I, I hope – we don't all of a sudden think that we're the Dodgers or like going to be the the Cardinals when it comes to developing hitters. I think they're close. I think they're capable. And if they'd spend a few more resources on hitters at the top of the draft, I think you'd see it. I think we'll see it with Gavin Cross. I think we'll see it with Caden Wallace and Carter Jensen. But they need more of those guys to show off. And then on the pitching side, I get it. I'm fed up too. But I don't even know like how salvageable some of the stuff they have is at this point. And that's, and that's the thing. There's so much uncertainty related to the pitching. And when people see uncertainty and have to experience that uncertainty, they want to like snuff it out. They're like, I, I want to turn that uncertainty into certainty as soon as I possibly can. That's why these results are as drastic as they are. Like, like throw us out. Uh, if, you, if you put out this poll after 2021, I think it'd be 50-50. For, for, for these results, oh, yeah. but you did it after 2022 when they were so, when fans are so traumatized from the experience of watching that rotation and, and the bullpen to some degree that they're like, just, just make us capable of pitching. What's funny is if 2023 happens and we're scoring three and a half runs a game and our pitching is, you know, top 15, top 12, something like that, put out this poll after that and you're going to get the exact opposite results. Right. And so I, I get it because there's a lot of recency bias in this, but to some degree, I wonder is our fans coming around to my thinking too, which is like, no, maybe pitching is just more important than hitting. Like maybe it's just a little bit more important that you be really good at pitching. The, I, and maybe there's some, some bias in, in my mind as well is I'm thinking about the world series teams, your third baseman drafted shortstop traded for as a minor leaguer, Second baseman, traded for, but first baseman, drafted. Left fielder, drafted. Center fielder, traded for as a minor leaguer. And so right field, second base, they filled in. Ketra was an international free agent. Seven of the nine guys played in your minor league system at some in some capacity. Eski, I think they threw right in there, but you get my point. Like, he was a rookie AAA mm-hmm. guy. The pitching staff, Chris Young, journeyman. Irvin Santana, mm-hmm. journeyman. Uh, Johnny Cueto, traded for him. James Shields traded for him. They didn't draft and develop anybody but Ace and Duffy. 
And they they just assembled this pitching staff and they grew they home grew some of the bullpen guys, but maybe that's where my head's at is that you can piece together a rotation better than you can a lineup. And maybe I'm just wrong in that regard that I would rather draft and develop all the hitters and then eventually trade them for arms, but maybe I'm backwards. I could be totally wrong in that regard. And that's why, like I said, I didn't just come out here and be like, ah, you guys are all wrong. I just looking at it differently, I guess. Well, I think you have to also think like, think about how much it costs us to sign Jordan Lyles, right? Two, two years, 17 million for him. The pitching, the starting pitching market was insane this off season. You just have to pay so much money for it that I don't, I don't begrudge Sherman for trying to turn this organization into an organization that pumps out starting pitching. But when you miss on it, when you're not good at it, it, there's a, you pay a steep price. Like you're just not competitive for a while. And so, you know, if they're going to turn this into a starting pitching factory, do I think that that's the most efficient way of doing it? I do. I think the most efficient way of, of building a, a small market team is to become a starting pitching factory because then you're leveraging and trading off of the most valuable resource in baseball. But you have to do it well, or you're like, <laughs> they started talking about doing this like two years ago when Sherman took over. And it's like, that was a joke at that time because they just were not good at it. They're so bad at it that when you're not good at it, you end up with 97 lost seasons and overhauling your pitching development to some degree and hoping, hoping against hope that it was all your major league pitching coach's fault. You know? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's move on just a little bit. We're going to talk a little bit about breakout candidates for this year. Hopefully we're not getting too long. I want to talk about 2023. We're going to just really rapid fire go through this. Alex, I want to get Mike. I want you to give a one pitching candidate for a breakout and one position player candidate for a breakout and why you like each of those guys. We'll start with Alex because he deserves to be number one. Goody. Don't take any of my answers. (laughs) That's what I was hoping you weren't going to do with me. I'm going to go with Michael Garcia. So hopefully you had him. No, didn't have him. Sorry. Okay. I think Michael Garcia by June will slot in as a very average big leaguer. And what is he going to be? 22, 23? He's not going to be 24. In my head, he wasn't quite 24 yet. So like either way, he's young. And I really think he's going to slot in as their shortstop. I think Bobby Witt Jr. by the time it's all said and done, if you're talking if, – if he's still playing shortstop and they move Garcia off the position – I won't go there. We'll circle back to this conversation in a couple years. Let's let's hold that off. But I really think that the move is to slide Bobby Wood Jr. over to third and let Michael Garcia play shortstop. He is slick. I know Esky was so offensively inept at times that people like in hindsight and like retrospect almost looked down on Esky's tenure in Kansas City. He was outstanding in terms of what that club needed. He was awesome defensively. I think he won a gold glove, right? I think one. Like he he, he won yeah, a he gold glove, I think, because it was it was all a, a blast. Because Locane didn't get one, but he he did. I do I, I do think he ended up getting one, and he was just consistently solid and available all the time. He put the bat on the ball. He made things happen on the bases, and he was just a consistent contributor to a really good team. I think Michael Garcia can be that with a little more stability offensively. Make things happen on the bases. Be really solid, consistent, and smooth on the infield. And put the ball in play, but walk like more than 3% of the time. And you have just a a consistent contributor. I really think that in September, he's going to be the everyday shortstop of this team. Who's your pitching candidate? 
well, um, Ryan, Ryan Yarbrough. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, not Yarbrough. I am going to go with Alec Marsh. I thought about going like how I wanted to, to phrase this. I think Daniel Lynch is the most likely candidate to go from that to really good. But in terms of breaking out, I'll go with Alec Marsh because he did have a down year last year. I just think he's too good. And I think the people they brought in, like if you could tell me, hey, Alec Marsh needs X, Y, and Z, these are the exact people I would have brought in to fix those three things. They're going to help him with his breaking ball, help him find a fastball that works for him, and he is going to be really good. Whether it's out of the bullpen or in the rotation, I don't know. But I fully expect Alec Marsh to be a, a regular big leaguer by July. He's just too talented. The stuff is too loud. And I really think he'll go from having a what was pretty awful year at Double A in terms of the just the results um, to being a big league contributor pretty pretty smoothly here. Mike, you're up, Spud. Uh, it has to be pitcher and a and a position player. I can't. Okay, yeah, damn it. you can't do. Okay. Yes, you can't do. What are you trying to? Cheat? Can I? Can I go? <laughs> it can be. It can be minor league. It can be major league. Whatever. Yeah, you can do okay. either one of those. All right. Yeah. So, and I'm torn, but I'm gonna go with. Uh, I'm gonna go with. Uh, I'm gonna go with Peyton Wilson for my my hitter, uh, just because I've been on the Peyton Wilson train since he was drafted. And we saw at the end of last year, the second half of last year, him start to break out. And and if he can continue that into this year, you're talking about a guy with tools on tools on tools who can really be a guy who then starts moving very quickly. Now, do you have a spot for him right now necessarily? No, but I think he'll be an easy guy to find a spot for. If you don't know who Peyton Wilson was, he was a draft eligible sophomore out of Alabama, I believe. Is that correct? Out of Alabama. And um, struggled that first year, and but has just is athletic a little bit, and he's like a lot of guys like this. Profile wise, he's somewhat like Caden Wallace was out of last year. He a little bit too much swing and miss, um, swings too much. Like a lot of guys, we've been kind of having that back and forth on Twitter. He he swings too much, uh, but he's got power. He can run, uh, you know, slick fielder, or somewhat pretty good above average fielder, and uh, at second base, and just just a guy that. I think has a chance to be a, an above, a, a greatly above average hitter at the major league level for my pitching guy. Uh, I want to go with Jonathan Boland, but coming off of injury, that's a little bit tough. Um, I'm going to go with my boy, John Heasley then. Okay. <laughs> my, my goal is that Brian Sweeney can come in and either get John Heasley to improve on the fastball he currently throws or scrap it all together and get him to throw a different type of fastball, maybe improve his two seamer and lean on that more. Um, but I would like to see, I think John Heasley has the pitch ability and the mix of stuff to be a four or sometimes even lower ERA kind of guy. I really do. I like his breaking stuff, the thing that holds him back. And, and we kind of saw him do it somewhat last year. And, and uh, we were talking about it with um, Lyles and Yarbrough really. Um, but with Lyles, you almost want that fastball to be his, his change of pace pitch, his off speed pitch kind of Heasley was doing that at times last year, at times he was leading with the curveball and leading with the slider. He's got it. And then throwing in the changeup, but then the fastball came as the off speed pitch. And when he does that, it was really good. I want him, them to say, Hey, we can make your fastball even better. And I think he becomes a four ERA or at his best, a little even below that. So my boy, John Heasley and Peyton Wilson, those are my two 
breakout candidates. My honorable mention was going to be Michael Massey. That was the other guy that I was kind of. No, no, you, know, you don't get to take forth. a third. Like, shut Mason. your mouth. You don't get to take a third in a sneaky way like that. That's not fair. So I'm going to give my breakout candidates for 2023. My first one should surprise everyone. I don't think anybody's going to expect this one. For my pitching breakout candidate, I'm choosing Chris Bubich. Now, I know he had a terrible year last year, has been wildly inconsistent. Yeah, yeah, I'm choosing Chris Bubich. Um, <laughs> here's why. Here's my reasoning behind this, right? Bubich is a smart guy. Bubich, we've seen him throw as hard as 95 at times. Uh, when he really needs to, rears back and throw it. What is his big deficiency? Command. That's really it. So if he comes in with better command, and maybe even, we know he's been working on a slider, comes in with a slider, I just have this sense, and I've been watching some Bubich outings from last year, that if somebody can unlock uh, uh, some of the things that are in there, you have a guy who can be successful at the major league level. I know it sounds crazy because he had such a terrible year last year, but also remember that coming into last year, he actually had a better career ERA than Brady Singer. He had been better throughout his time in Major League Baseball. So it's not impossible that he could come out, increase his command just a little bit, maybe add a fourth pitch in that slider and look like a totally different pitcher to us. Just throws his fastball 30% of the time, top of the zone heaters up in 93, 94 when he really needs to, that sort of thing. It would not surprise me if they unlock something with Chris Bubich. And so I'm laying all my money on him and then hoping for a long shot victory there. Um, my breakout candidate offensively, this won't be a surprise if you follow my Twitter feed, is actually going to be Kyle Isbell, my boy Kyle Isbell. Um, and I'm actually calling it a breakout entirety. I think if he gets to a major league average offensive player, he's hugely valuable because of that elite defense in center field. And so I think it's possible. I think he hits the ball hard enough. He just needs to lay off some pitches and swing a little less. Uh, and I, another guy who I think later on in the year started to find some stuff and maybe, but wasn't getting consistent playing time. I think Matt Quattrero is going to have a better sense of how they should use him and do a lot better, uh, putting him in advantageous situations where he can have success offensively. I think Kyle Isbell needs a restart and 2023 is a good opportunity for that. Do not be surprised if he's a major league average hitter next year and killing it defensively for the Royals. I like those. Hey, I, I'm not a huge Chris Bubich fan. I think that's a long shot, but you never know, right? If it happens, the Royals are playing with found money pretty much. We'll end this week's episode like we end every episode with our Just About Outside segment, where we share something that's interesting to us outside the world of baseball. This is Alex's first Just About Outside segment. I know he's very, very excited to participate. Alex, tell us what's interesting to you outside the world of baseball. The National Football League made one of the most interesting decisions I think I've ever seen like in the world of sports. Now, they had one of the most unique circumstances I've ever seen in the world of sports. But <clears throat> this is something that I have a hard time talking about because I feel insensitive like going here. But there is a rule in the NFL rule book, and Joe Mixon tweeted about it, that if you don't play your games, it's just canceled. The game is canceled, and that's fine. Like I was having this conversation earlier this week, like, oh, you can't expect them to have played that game. No, I don't. I did not expect them in any way to finish that game on for Monday Night Football. But like at the same time, there's a consequence for not finishing your game. And that is you just don't have one of those. And the National Football League came in 
and was like, no, we need to appease Buffalo for some reason and make a new rule one week before the playoffs that would strip Kansas City of hosting Buffalo for the AFC Championship game. Like, that is... It was so odd to me how they handled it. And I know people were like, well, Chiefs fans shouldn't be upset because we made out like bandits. Why? The rule says that we get the one seed, and the rules say that the one seed gets a bye and home field advantage throughout the playoffs. I was looking at that going, look, I, I could not have felt worse for DeMar Hamlin, and even in some ways T. Higgins, like especially after Bart Scott was talking about how somehow it was T. Higgins' fault. Like, I'm glad T. Higgins is in a good headspace. I'm really glad DeMar Hamlin's okay. But there's a rule in place in case that game gets canceled. And they were just like, yeah, no, we're not going to follow the rules. We're just going to create a new one on the fly in week 18 to appease Buffalo and absolutely give the shaft to Cincinnati, who did everything right. They did everything they had to do, were supposed to do. They did everything right. And Cincinnati got absolutely worked over. And, you know, an underrated team that nobody really talked about that got worked over was Baltimore. Baltimore lost the ability to win the AFC North with that game being canceled. And, like, there's just a layer of, like, Buffalo fans moving the goalposts as they talk about this. But I thought it was really weird. I thought it was really, really weird that the NFL was just like, well, we don't care what the rules are. We're going to make rules that fit what we want to happen. And it was just it was just odd. That was my just a bit outside take to this week. That's a very controversial take there. <laughs> Alex, you're bringing uh, yeah, save the angry tweets for Alex. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't send them to me. All right. Alex is going, Alex is obviously going to hell and he doesn't care about that. So <laughs> all my buddies are going to be there. Uh, okay. That's true. Why not? All the fun people are there. I'll do my just a bit outside. Um, and Mark's going to absolutely hate this because he always makes fun of me for this, but I'm, I'm kind of a true crime guy. I'm a true crime nut. I like to, and maybe that's a little sick too. Maybe it's a little sinister. I like to, um, entertain myself by following stories of crimes that actually happened. Um, and I found a podcast that I've been listening to, uh, the show that kind of got me into true crime and all that sort of stuff is a show called disappeared on ID discovery. I don't, I guess you could say I'm not necessarily a true crime guy as much as I am a mystery guy. And so like, I only like it if it's, if it's unsolved. So I dig unsolved mysteries. There was a show on Hulu for a long time that I liked that did like a humorous look at unsolved stuff throughout history. Um, but I found a new podcast that I really, really like. So I was going to share it with my other mystery slash true crime fans out there. It's called the trail went cold and it's kind of like our podcast in that at least during the season, we put out a podcast every single week so you can get consistent content. This guy does an episode every single week and they're all new and it's always, it's always really good. So if you, if you're into like um, the mystery stuff and you don't necessarily want the answer all the time, um, the trail went cold is a good, is a good podcast that I've been like obsessed with for about a week and a half. So give it a shot. Yeah, give it a shot if the world's not bad enough and you need to hear about people getting murdered all the time. Yay! <laughs> that sounds like a ton of fun. Uh, um, uh, anyway, I'm going to talk about something that is helping the world this week. And that is, uh, I don't know if anybody of you follow the news very closely, um, but New Jersey, the state legislature of New Jersey, uh, passed a bill that 
now um, requires K through 12 education to teach media literacy in public schools. And so if you don't know, for the last 10 years or so, there's been a big push by some organizations to start teaching media literacy in schools. This is to help students understand and help people understand the difference between good information and bad information, between misinformation and disinformation, between information that can, you know, is useful and has standards and things like that, news media mostly, um, and uh, information that is maybe a hoax or is propaganda and things like that. And so I'm a big proponent that we should teach media literacy in schools. And I think that's a big part of solving our mis- and disinformation problem in the United States. And so it was great to see New Jersey become the first state in the United States to mandate the teaching of it at the K-12 level. I hope more stu- more states follow their lead. I think it'd be great if Missouri and Kansas and you know Iowa and Nebraska and the Midwest really picked up on it too, uh, because... It's something that is hugely valuable in a society that we have now where there is so much information that people are inundated with all the time. Their ability to be able to tell what is good information and what isn't is going to save lives, is going to help create more informed citizens, more informed voters, all that sort of thing. And I think that's hugely, hugely valuable if you would like to maintain a functioning democracy, a functioning society, uh, which we're teetering right on the brink of right now. Uh, so that's my just about outside for this week. Very good job, New Jersey. Hopefully some other states get on top of, of doing that as well. They, they led the way on the sports gambling thing too. Yeah. Well, they have Atlantic city. And so I think they were like, yeah, we way, gotta, to go, yeah. Way, way to go, New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that is all we have for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. Sorry if it was choppy because of my internet issues, Alex Duvall, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you on. We're going to try and get you on even more. Um, Thank you so much. We will be back in a, roughly a month and then we'll start weekly episodes again because we are coming up. We're like 36 days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. So we'll see you again in about a month. Until then, be good to each other and go Royals. Go Royals.